see, we're on a mission from God. Welcome back. This is Amanda Qureshi, The Q. For my second episode of the first season, I have my friend. Uh, I guess we're friends. Are we friends, Koi? I think so. Okay. My friend, Koi Jones, who I really only invited to be on this podcast because he has the best name in the world. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that your real name? It is my real name. Yeah. I, uh, I actually grew up with a nickname and didn't realize that Koi was my actual name until I was you know, six, six years old, but, uh, my parents called me Cody. So depending on what your, uh, depending on what your, you know, subculture is, Cody Jones is even a better name, but I didn't want to be like a country music star or rodeo, you know, hero <laughs> or anything like that. So. Well, that's kind of what Koi sounds like. like actually Koi sounds more like Louis L'Amour style, classic Western. Yeah. Yeah. There's that. They, they named me Cody with the nickname because they wanted me to sound very Texan, but, uh, yeah. I'm I'm sort of, sort of Texan no matter which way I go. But uh, Koi seemed a little more, you know, academically respectable for me. So, all right, are you? Were you born and raised in Texas? Yeah, I was born in uh, I was born in Uvalde, Texas, which is a little bit west of uh, San Antonio, and uh, lived in Mississippi for a little while. But uh, I came back to Texas and spent most of my kind of later childhood in Texas. So um, excellent. That's a yeah. Texas is what I claim. Right. Well, Texans are good people. I think so. Yeah, I was happy to happy to get back. So I was gone, gone for a long time in uh, early adulthood, but uh, moved to Austin about a decade ago. I'm very happy to be back. Yeah, I'm actually, uh, so I, I am a transplant. Obviously, I came here in 1999. And uh, I never thought that I would be a Texan, right? Like I never, I just, I just assumed I would always just be like, you know, a Californian who lives in Texas. But I would say about seven years ago. I don't even remember what was going on, but I just remember finding myself feeling this enormous sense of pride about being in Texas. And, and oh, and whenever yeah. I would go on the internet and people would be talking shit about Texans, I would be like, hey, right. what? <laughs> it's Whoa. not true. You're <laughs> awesome, you elitist assholes. And then I just kind of fell into it. And now I feel like I, I'm a little, I might be borderline belligerent about it. Okay. I'm, I'm about Texas now. Like I have a scarf with the Texas flag and I only shop at H-E-B for groceries. That's and, right. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I find that, uh, I find that folks that, you know, it's, it's interesting that kind of the, the Texas and the Texan and the weirdness about it sort of transcends like different parts of the country. Like, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of close connections to the deep South, but they have their own sort of weird hangups about Texas. So it's not just like, it's not just like California versus Texas or Oklahoma yeah. versus Texas. Like people from Georgia are also just like Texas. I don't uh, you know. Really? Get, yeah, you think, but I mean, there's a lot of cultural similarities. Like, yeah, I mean, Eastern Texas might as well be Georgia, but right. uh, but they have like there's there's some mythology about what Texas is that everybody gets it a little bit wrong, and there's a little bit of sense of inferiority for other folks. So. Well, I mean. They wouldn't call it that, but yeah. You know, Texan can see what it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that's, that's interesting. We don't need the, we don't need them. We don't need anybody. That's right. Right. 
we can stand on our own. Yeah, independent. All right, All right well, I'm going to actually kick off the, like my, my uh, initial kickoff for the podcast is to do a series of quote unquote icebreaker questions. All right. So let's break some goddamn ice. Okay, let's do it. So my first question for you is, what is the last thing you watched on television? Um, it would be uh, Doctor Who. So oh. I got a, uh, I've got an 11 year old at home and that's what we've been watching. So he's a, uh, he's turned into a Doctor Who fan. So nice. we're, we're going through the David Tennant years. Oh, those are amazing. But you know what? I actually liked the guy before him that only had like one season. What's oh yeah, Chris, Christopher Chris. Eccleston. Yeah, I actually really liked him as the doctor. Um, but I heard that he like left the show with some kind of, there's some kind of drama or whatever. Yeah, it's like he just wasn't interested in doing it. So who's not interested in doing Doctor Who? Yeah, so. I know. Weird. But, uh, so uh, my kids actually went through this same phase. I think it's like a, a age thing, like in between, like the tween years, kids really get into yeah. Doctor Who. And it's yeah. fun. We watched them all. Yeah, he, uh, we, we just kind of got through the Matt Smith years, and that's that's like my favorite and his favorite, and we're working oh, really? back. So he, he's still going through Matt Smith withdrawal. So Aww. he won't evaluate David Tennant on his own terms. It's just like, <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of like Matt Smith that I like, but it's, you know, it's not a – it's not exactly Matt Smith, so but he'll he'll eventually accept David Tennant, just as I did. <laughs> like his father before him. Like his father before him. That's right. <laughs> so, process. I've been in your shoes, kiddo. <laughs> we all fall to David Tennant at some point. I actually feel like David Tennant was because he was sort of the revitalization of it, right? Like they brought in Nicholson, he didn't work out. And then they're like, well, I know we'll bring in Tennant and he'll like get all the, the tween girls um, and their moms excited. Cause he's got the whole sappy romance kind of puppy dog yeah, right. You know, right. situation happening. And I think yeah. that's what, what kind of revitalized the whole thing, at least over on this side of the pond. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I watched a couple of episodes of the uh, Eccleston thing when I came came out but it was really like five or six years later yeah that, I, that I've truly picked it up so Matt Smith is sort of my my doctor yeah but. I do like Matt Smith I do okay so that's a perfectly legitimate and an excellent choice for entertainment I congratulate you thanks you have passed the first question <laughs> All right, <good> deal. <laughs> second question These are really icebreaker questions they're, <laughs> they're, uh, they're a test to see if we can proceed we're judging you. We're all judging you. No pressure. Uh, okay. Second question. What is the last book that you read? Um, let's see. It would be uh, a book called Lud in the Mist. Hmm. A Hope Merely's. So it's like a very classic fantasy hmm. novel written in the, I think it was the thirties, but um, <laughs> it probably doesn't provoke a lot of a, uh, a lot of conversation, but yeah, she's a, <laughs> <laughs> she was a part of a scene um, that involved, involved like Virginia Woolf and uh, T.S. Eliot. And, oh. uh, it's like a forgotten, it's a forgotten fantasy book unless like you're really into fantasy. So like Neil, Neil Gaiman or Gaiman, I can't remember if it's Gaiman or Gaiman, but um, uh, Neil, my buddy Neil says <laughs> that's one of his favorite books. So I was like, I probably ought to read it. Uh, yeah. But, well, uh, I, I mean, that's cool. Like I, this year, I actually uh, decided to, because I'd never read Ursula uh, Le Guin's um, books, right? Her Earthsea books. Did you read Yeah, them? right. Uh, only the first one. Yeah, right. And that was in seventh grade. 
for school. Yeah, but it was well, cool. I never read it. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, I enjoyed it. I was. I like put it on my headphones, went for a hike, and it was actually pretty great. I mean, it's yeah, it's still it's still a classic. Yeah. All right. Well, I never read it since seventh grade, so. <laughs> but I, I think they're still assigning it to seventh graders. So if my son ever reads it, I'll be like, I've been there too, man. It. <laughs> he's, he's Everything not, you've done, I've already experienced. Your son can cannot wait to go to college. It's <laughs> <Right. laughs> like free. <laughs> yeah. Um, the thing about that book about a wizard of, I think it's a wizard of Earthsea is the name of the book. Yep. It actually is pretty close to Harry Potter. Like, I feel like Harry Potter ripped a whole lot of shit off from that book. Like if yeah. you reread it in, in retrospect, it's like, what? It's, it's pretty similar. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think if you actually, Ursula Le Guin wrote, um, she wrote some reviews of Harry Potter and she, uh, she noted that uh, J.K. Rowling was not the original thinker that uh, a lot of people sort of said she was. Really? Was yeah, this is a great book. You know, like it, it's, it's really good, but it's, it's not a new twist on things. You know, um, so I think she probably, uh, I think she probably noticed her influence. So. Yeah. Okay, well, I feel vindicated by that because I, I was like, maybe I, you know, or maybe I'm just reading into it or whatever, but nope, nope, it is. It's pretty similar. Huh. There you go. All right, well, uh, the moral of the story is, Koi, that you can become a billionaire by ripping off other people's shit. See also. <laughs> that's, <Mark> probably, <laughs> that's probably the best way to become a billionaire. <laughs> has anyone else, has anyone done it any other way? <laughs> it's true it's very depressing for those yeah. of us who like to like to fancy ourselves as like these innovative thinkers but at a certain point maybe maybe I should just give in to the reality that I'm not and if I really want to ever be quote-unquote successful in life I just need to go ahead and um what's the word whatever I can't think of the word but when you take something and you just basically repurpose it that's sort of iterative okay or All just right. ripping it off yeah right <laughs> 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 in the parlance of our day that's right yeah <laughs> rip, that, rip that shit off all right that's... all right so the third and final icebreaker question on which you will be judged is what did you have for breakfast uh my standard fare which is a kolache so i'm 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 really pushing the whole texan theme so i yeah i had a uh, had a good old texas kolache so. your standard fare is a kolache <laughs> yeah yeah well, it's probably good as uh, I'm in a podcast because you can see that I eat a lot of kolaches in this one video. <laughs> so, okay, yeah, wait. that's my standard fare. Where so, do you buy these kolaches? Well, I, I I get up pretty early every day, so there's not that many places open <laughs> when I'm ready to have breakfast. So I, I get it from Shipley's because they're uh, Shipley's oh. because they're open at five a.m. And they so. have kolaches. Are they like legit? Yeah, they're pretty legit. I mean, Shipley's is a Texas, uh, you know, Texas establishment. Mm -hmm. so you can uh, you can pretty get pretty good uh, Texas kolaches. Now it's not like it's not like going to West or you know it's not Check Stop or anything, but it's right. uh, it's decent. Have you been to that? There's a place I don't know if I can pronounce it correctly. It's Rushkas, Rushkas. Yeah, with an H at the yeah. beginning. Yeah, yeah, that's that, uh, that's like on the way to Houston. Mm -hmm, Seventy-one. Uh, yeah, I've uh, I've been there. That's a uh, I, I generally try to make a pilgrimage there when I'm in the area. So right. Yes. You, yeah. I'm willing to go pretty far out of the way to get, <laughs> to get, a, get a good clutch. <laughs> I don't think that, that I don't think that that's 
crazy. I think that's actually like, for one thing, let me just say, if you live in Texas, you're used to driving long distances for no reason. Yeah, right. Or, or for minimal minimal reasons, <laughs> but like we we will regularly go to San Antonio or Houston for the day to eat because they have so much better food there. Yep. Or yeah. Dallas, although I don't like Dallas, but yeah, Dallas is a long way for for a meal. <laughs> it's, it's about the same distance as Houston. Yeah, well, Houston's a long way for a meal. <laughs> so, it is. It is. But San Antonio is a decent uh, is a decent distance for a good for a good meal. Yeah. Well, so we, you know, uh, my husband is from Pakistan, right? It's really hard to find good Pakistani food anywhere in the States. So there's like certain places that are known and there's a place in Houston and a place in Dallas. And there's, there's actually a place in San Antonio. That's really, really good. Okay. Um, what's it called? I'll find out the name for you. And they're doing like takeout and stuff too. So he'll like, he'll go and get stuff and even freeze it and we'll have it later. Cause it's, do, they have, do they have a setup where they'll ship it? Is it is it shippable? No, no. That's why we have to drive there. So we we go okay. there and we put it in the cooler and we bring it back and throw it in the freezer. All right. Well, maybe that's the only reason I'm not willing to drive that far is because I, my my tastes are not so regionally specific that I can, <laughs> I can usually find the Texas food that I love uh, in most places in Texas. So so yeah. But uh, fair I enough. I can see why you need to go a little further to uh, find good Pakistani food. Yes, yes. If have, have you had it? I don't know whether I've had it or just sort of generally northern Indian food. Ah, uh, okay. So, yeah, it is. It is different. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of regions in both Indian and Pakistan. There's yeah. different areas that have different spins on the same kinds of dishes, but there is definitely a difference between Pakistani food and Indian food. Okay. And so it's a. Uh, there's a, well, we ought to have you over sometime. My husband loves to barbecue and he does the, like the Pakistani style barbecue. Oh, nice. So, so at some point we'll have you guys over and you can try his stuff. He's always happy to um, feed people. I can get behind that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, one thing that I've noticed is that barbecue sort of transcends culture. Like, like you can yeah. get almost anybody from any culture down with barbecue. Yeah, it's a. I'd say it's a pretty common currency. Mm-hmm. So yeah, maybe that's the key to world peace. We just need to have a big old BBQ. Well, yeah. I mean, since peace usually involves some sort of sacrifice, <laughs> <laughs> then I think a uh, you know meat, a, a big slab of meat is probably a good uh, a good symbol of the loss that was required to bring people together. <laughs> so. yeah. And preferable to the blood of children. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> it, it represents civilizational advance. <laughs> We've come a long way, baby. That's right. <laughs> okay. We didn't have to fight a war. We just needed brisket. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? Yeah. We're solving things here, Coy. That's right. Right. Okay. So, uh, so we're done with the icebreaker questions. So now we can talk about whatever the hell we want. And okay. one of the things I want to talk to you about is how you are... So you are a Texan and you have ties to the South and you also are, uh, oh, hold on. Sorry. Is that your oh, agent? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I break your rule on not, uh, not talking to famous people for the <laughs> <laughs> for your podcast. Sorry, I'm a celebrity. Yeah, um, no, that was just my, my phone. I thought I'd shut it off. Sorry. 
Okay, no, no worries. That's cool. That's cool. I mean, you could take the calls and then we could listen to them on the podcast. That was actually my mom. It's a work day, but my mom apparently thinks calling me at 1020 is a good idea. What do you <laughs> think your mom was? <laughs> uh, I'm sure it's about Thanksgiving dinner. So Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Probably trying to see if I still dislike sweet potatoes. And the answer is yes. <laughs> Damn it. Okay. All right. So back to you. Sure. You are Texan. You're from the South. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you studied religious philosophy? Well, I was a, um, in my master's, I did a philosophy and then also theology. And then I just kind of went more straight philosophy. Okay. So, uh, and then did some PhD work. So yeah, but it's a philosophy of religion for the most part. Okay. So all of that, if you were to put that on paper, somebody would think you were some kind of raging, conservative, I don't know, uptight individual. And yet, oh, and add to that the fact that you like Civil War reenactments. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like all of that sounds very sketchy to me. And yet, when you sit down with you, you're actually a, the, like the, this incredibly progressive-minded, chill, laid-back dude who's not particularly concerned about politics or religion, or maybe just religion. Yeah, I mean, I come out of a pretty conservative culture, so my, you know, my people are from, you know, they're Baptists, and they, uh, you know, come out of a religious worldview that I think most most people haven't really encountered since, like, the 19th century. I mean, we weren't even sort of fundamentalists. We were, like, 19th century believers, so, um, so yeah, there's a, uh, I'm not to say that we were Amish or anything, because that's more like 17th, 16th century, but. Uh, it's much more progressive. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, but, uh, you know, essentially, like, it wasn't even kind of fundamentalist, because like, fundamentalists are basically surrounded by a world that thinks their beliefs are silly. So they've, they've kind of weaponized their beliefs. But like, I come from like, just a deep South kind of culture, where belief in literal creation or something is like no big deal. So yeah. you're not fighting about it because you just assume that that's, that's kind of how it was. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I just come from a deeply conservative, uh, religious conservative background. And uh, yeah, but uh, with all my schooling, it just kind of eventually wore off. So, so um, what, the, what, what they say is true about sending away your kids to be indoctrinated in, in liberal institutions. Yeah, well, I, you know, I went to my master's was technically a seminary, uh, you know, and they even even in the religious world, the joke is, you know, cemetery rather than seminary, because that's where your traditional beliefs go to die. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, but that's, I went to like the most liberal Protestant seminary there was. So, uh, yeah, it's not traditional religion. So it's been a very wandering journey in terms of religion. I don't really so, kind of resemble myself back when I was 17 or 18. I, I, mean, I mean, we've had this conversation. I'm the same way. We had a whole case built against evolution. It wasn't even, um, and, and this is something I struggle to explain to people who are very progressive, who just can't see why anyone would believe a certain way or who are uh, even worse, you know, completely derogatory or arrogant toward those people. Right. right. But there is, uh, it, it's a completely different way of viewing the world and it's quite airtight. And the thing that prevents you from following any contrary line of thought is often the mistrust that you have uh, in people who are, who are like that, who are just basically condescending assholes. (laughs) 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 Oh, oh, how charming you're, you know, you believe in that the world was created in, in six actual days. Well, aren't you, uh, you know, adorable. Let me, let me help you. 
right? Right, exactly. You know, I mean, that in and of itself is enough to prevent you from ever listening to somebody to be treated like that. But then what happens is, as you and I both know, then you go away to places like college, or in my case, I went and did a bunch of nefarious things (laughs) with a bunch of nefarious people. (laughs) And uh, you actually are confronted with people who think differently than you, who are actually kind of cool, right? Yeah, and then right. you're like, well, hang on. I mean, this person is actually really cool. I like them a lot. They think differently and they might actually have a good point. And then that's when you start picking at those threads. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm a little bit unusual in the sense that like my deconversion or whatever didn't, I, I don't really felt like it came from confronting and uh, assimilating with cultures that were different than me. Like I, I remain like, I kind of remained very clearly cultural evangelical well, well well past the time in which any religious belief had expired. Probably even in my mid-30s. I'm, you know, I'm early 40s right now. But uh, probably, probably even in my early 30s, I was still, like, having difficulty, you know, saying curse words. Like, I would spell stuff out. Like, it was silly, right? Like, um, I, like, I, like I just had a... Uh, um, it wasn't that I was immature about it. I just had, you know, I had a way of life that worked for me. But where I encountered, uh, you know, issues in my, in my religious belief and faith was like very deeply intellectual. I didn't do anything crazy in college. Like I was, like I was probably a pretty boring person. But, uh, but like what was going on in my head and what was going on in, in kind of the, the thinking that I was doing was deeply, you know, deeply acidic <laughs> to belief and like very, very active struggle on a bunch of different fronts. But like that's, that's kind of how I live. I live in, live in my head a little bit. So it actually took a long time for kind of practice to catch up with, uh, with where I was mentally. What was it though that gave you permission to do that? So let me, the, I had a very different situation in that. I was afraid to do any kind of intellectual exploration for a long time, mainly because I think I deep down, I just knew. I knew that if I were to open up those books or talk to those people or go to those schools, I would, I would have to confront something that I didn't want to confront, which is that believing lies. So um, it's really hard to give yourself that permission to say, I am going to allow myself to hold up this thing that I believe in that is the foundation of everything I believe. And if it's true, it's true. And if it's not, well, I guess I'll know. Yeah. Like, how, how, how do you get to that point? I think it, it, it may just be a, it may really be an obsession of my family's, but, uh, you know, we, we just like really believe in truth, in like truth, right? Yeah. Like uh, facts are facts, right? Like there's a, you know, as one of the things that I've come to you know, realize as I've gotten older is that like what people believe often depends on, you know, just who they're with. Right. And they uh, they basically use language in a way like not to express facts, but to influence, you know, influence others behavior. <laughs> and, and the language is to influence other behavior. Right. And so you don't have like really strict boundaries between lying and telling the truth because you don't you don't really view language like that. Like you would tell somebody, uh, you would tell somebody like you like their hair, even if you don't like their hair, mm-hmm. because that's not what's important in the context. Right. Right. And I think that that's actually true for a lot of orthodoxies with people. It's, it's honestly like the question for folks is not whether there was like a literal seven day, you know, six day creation. It was like, what in the expression of dogma allows me to be a part of this community with people? And this is how I express like my solidarity 
But like, I totally didn't get that for the same reason that I would tell you that I thought your hair looked bad because I thought you were asking me whether, <laughs> whether your hair looked bad. Right. And, uh, and so there was a weird kind of, you know, just naivete about like the relationship between expression and truth. So like when I, you know, when I went to college and encountered live questions that people were debating this stuff, I, uh, I took like a, a very naive approach to like, figure, well, this can't be right. Or, you know, these, this, thing's, this thing is inconsistent. So I have to keep stretching and stretching. And that, you know, that would eventually broke down the whole worldview. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't like, a, it wasn't because I ran into social situations that kind of outstripped my ability to deal with them within the, like the practical framework that I lived in. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. No, it makes total sense. I think because I was afraid I actually needed the social, it was sort of a backdoor through the social channels. I was able to let my guard down when I felt safe and comfortable and was able to have conversations with people, you know, like um, a perfect example is homophobia. I mean, I was raised incredibly homophobic, right? And it wasn't until I was an adult and out on my own and there were gay people in my life as coworkers or, you know, just people that I knew through friends who I would just sit around with and they weren't defensive and they would allow me to have those conversations where I was very awkwardly trying to understand what it was that this meant, right? Like, what does it mean? Like, how is this possible, right? And without them making me feel like an ass, like they were very patient. The people that I talked to were very patient with me. And when you're confronted with something like that, unless you are an evil person, right? When you're confronted with uh, a perfectly reasonable, kind and loving person who treats you with respect, but isn't backing down from your inability to understand them, then there's not much you can do. Like you, you have to yield at some point. Right. Yeah. I, I'll just tell you a little bit about my, like my backstory. I, you know, I left that, you know, I left the academic world and now I'm a healthcare consultant and that like, it's really only in my mid thirties that I began to, you know, encounter a truly different culture than I was raised in or the, or the artificial culture of academia where everything's like very much, you know, intellectual. First of all, that I got out, and I was in the religious academy, which is a whole other thing. Like it's, it's now, it's like unusual for me. When I was in that academy, it was unusual for me to go a day without having a deep conversation about religion. Mm-hmm. Now I might have a deep conversation about religion, you know, maybe once a year when I do a podcast, right? Like, <laughs> right. Uh, and so you encounter like the, I encounter this world professionally and now personally where like nobody cares about it. It's not that people disagree with mm-hmm. that world. It's that nobody cares right. about it. And, on a, and it's like a deeper kind of sociological thing where there's just a, there's a, well, I mean, if I were to put it in pejorative religious terms, there's a rootlessness to secular culture that, I, you know, I can see as a former religious person, but I didn't, uh, I didn't, now I'm fine with, but it took some getting used to. Uh, and so like, I think when people, uh, you know, when you've got that kind of person who's not rational that you're talking about, he just doesn't get it. Like, I think that they don't understand that you don't experience, if you're a secular person, that you don't experience community the same way. Right. Like, that, that, like, you know, secular people can talk about community, but it's all kind of voluntary community, right? right. Like there, there's not like, they're not rooted in the community. It's something that they've chosen. And, and they wouldn't use words like the community because they, in their world, there is no the community. But in the world I came out of, there was the community. 
And sure, I didn't realize that there were like black communities in the, you know, in the South that are not the community, right? It's a community right. conflict, but like that's not how you experience it if you kind of come out of a deeply embedded tradition. That's kind of hard to kind of translate. And so that's why I end up with all these quirks like Civil War stuff like that because I get connected. Like I, I had a Civil War room growing up and I still have like Civil War paintings up. Let so, me ask you this. Are you, I mean, are you on good terms with your family? Or are you like a black sheep? Yeah. Okay. I've had some black sheep years, but I think we're, uh, (laughs) um, I think we're all on good terms now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what you just mentioned kind of speaks to where I think most people are. That's where I am at least. And I think the average, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that the average person is this way, but so much of the culture wars is about drawing lines in the sand there's a reality that you have to deal with. Like, I, yeah, I guess you could, if you wanted to completely disconnect from your whole family and your past and the way you were raised or whatever, and then just like join forces with your like-minded ideological mates and, you know, feel righteous. But the reality is that we're made up of these experiences and the people who might be different than us, who still very much play a role in our emotional and psychological and intellectual and spiritual health. Yeah. And so I feel like that nuance is being shat upon (laughs) by our current culture. I think it's, and I think it's a goddamn shame because I think that we are, that's who we are. That's what it is. That is what reality is. And so forcing us to live in this non-reality, this false, um, you know, these false ideological buckets that don't really represent what it's like to live on the ground as a, progressive person who's born and raised in Texas with a, you know, extremely conservative family, like that, that to me is, I think it's gross. I don't like it. Yeah. And I think uh, this, this kind of thing you're talking about, I mean, our, our, our experiences, they aren't the same. Like people, people's experiences aren't the same. And I've always, like, I've always enjoyed, you know, looking at your Facebook posts and things like that, because you're very much attuned to, your religion and media influence, right? And that, like, the deal is in our heavily mediatized society that, like, people genuinely don't have the same experiences. You know, we're, we're all waiting for this kind of spontaneous order to, to generate it, just out of some kind of common life. But, like, we don't even have common, like, at a sensory level, we don't have common lives anymore. Right. It's not even just about ideology. Like, I grew up in a small town um, in, in a series of small towns. I moved around a lot. Um, but like, uh, they were always little college towns and, uh, my, you know, my sensory experience is very different than somebody who grew up in a city, um, or certainly somebody who lives in a city now. And it's only late in life that I came to a city and I generally try to get out every now and <laughs> right? Like, like, cause it, it, it's too much. And this is Austin. This is not like New York city, uh-huh. <laughs> like, um, but like, uh, you know, we, we live in different sort of experiential worlds and, um, I honestly think a lot of the a lot of the fighting um, is not because people are closed-minded. It's because like there's a basic there's a basic need for order, and uh, and these are competing orders that are not really uh, reconcilable with each other in many you know in many respects. So, yeah. like in terms of my my religious journey, I've become I'm not a polytheist, but I've become something of a pot like like the the intellectual version of a polytheist. Like what I've uh, what I've learned to appreciate is just kind of the enjoyment of worlds that come out of 
places. What I can't stand is a world that has no ways of life that are not connected to anything, which is, you know, I'm a consultant and I, I view my professional life as as a experience that doesn't come out of anything. It's living mm -hmm. in hotels, uh, you know, it, it needs to die as a way of life, I think. But, um, but like, uh, this is why, like, I love, you know, I'll talk about, talk about places, whether it's the deep South or whether it's, uh, whether it's Texas or California. Um, you know, I have had the opportunity to travel to India for the reasons that I love Texas. I love, you know, South India and its difference from Northern India. Uh, but like the, you know, they're not compatible with each other, but it's important to like, it, it has become important for me to enjoy their own kind of coherence. Like when you see the way that they're connected to the land and the histories of the people, like, uh, I guess that's, I'm not a tolerant person. I, I don't want to, you know, deceive anybody to think that I'm like super tolerant of all, all ways of life, but there's an, but I've lived long enough to find that there's an absurdity in like every way of life. And so uh -huh. I, I enjoy what's enjoyable about them. And I try not to get hoodwinked into thinking that any way of life is pretty decent. I have a couple things to say to this. <laughs> One. Potentially inflammatory. <laughs> <laughs> is that is you know, is, just in an offhand way who cares you know so. uh james i i read a bunch of james baldwin this year so he actually writes a lot about the american identity not just as a black person but just as an american right and how how it, it's very much what you were des describing and at a certain point in his life he was sick and tired of being you know treated like crap in america so he decided to go to france and live and he had this sort of like momentary awakening where he was like he realized when he went to France just how American he was and how very very complicated it is to be American because we don't have any sort of common thing common culture that we all agree on that brings us all together and roots us as one and that's the nature of this country and that's the struggle of this country and I think there are people especially in like um, political movements who are trying to create that, right? That's what they're, uh, and, and you see a lot of it, and it doesn't even have to be full-on jingoistic, you know, rhetoric, but there are certain ideals put out as American ideals that are supposed right. to get people to congeal in, in those ideologies, right? And take them on as their own. So I do, I think that that's a, an actual thing, that rootlessness and that non-identity of Americanism and I think it's incredibly uncomfortable for us because of the way that we evolved, right? That, yeah. that, that we are psychologically and emotionally evolved to have these tribal affiliations. Right. I, don't, I don't think it's a bad thing, though. I actually think, you know, I actually think tribalism is, is going to have to go away yeah. <laughs> at some point. Like, it's just, it, it has served its purpose. And I think that it actually, it's a handy thing to rely on if you don't have anything else. But I think for humanity to move forward, we're going to have to build a future that's not based in tribalism. And so, yeah, I mean, I, so that discomfort of being an American is not, I, I, I'm not a person that thinks that being uncomfortable is a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, that, this tribalism, it no longer orients anybody. Like, I, you know, I can look back in history at certain points and be like, well, you know, this was, was a really ugly time with the tribalism, but at least, like, it founded a new order, <laughs> right? Like, uh, you know, right. It, it, at least there was something to build on. But, I, you know, I don't, the world we live in, I don't, we're so connected that tribalism just kind of equals extinction. 
as far you know as far as I can tell like nobody you you're you're not going to be able to commit enough genocide for tribalism to work <laughs> you know uh, the way that it's worked in history but um you know with the with the American experience I mean clearly we don't have a history the way that other some other societies do but like we have a history yeah, but it's really ugly <laughs> if you t- if you take a look at it I have a certain kind of masochism but I really enjoy I enjoy looking at that ugly history even to the point like uh, even to go back to these uh, you know, Civil War pictures I have up in my home, which I probably shouldn't have ever mentioned. Uh, <laughs> I, I have some understanding that it makes me sound like a freak. But um, I, you know, I don't celebrate them, but uh, like, I think it's important to have them up. They remind me who I am. To have, you know, to have those pictures up, not necessarily in a prominent place in my house, but like, hey, you know, this is, this is where you come from. And this is a reminder that the lost cause of the South still has this, you know, strong draw on people, which we saw from, you know, Trumpism and all that. And, and I think the, I think the important thing when we're, you know, when we're looking at that history is our history has never been unified either. Like we have a history. And so there's the dot, like there's the dominant narrative. And I think we're right to say that that's false, but also that's a history. That's the lie has shaped us. So the lie has some reality. And I think people need to pay attention. There is a, there is Americanness, which, you know, Baldwin discovered because he was also shaped by a lot of those, li- you know, a lot of those lies about who he was uh, as a black person. And also, you know, a, a, a white consciousness in that, uh, in that blackness. But, um, but like the the reality is like we've always been shaping that narrative in relation to real histories that we have that are collisions. I enjoy kind of tracing back those histories because it's a it is a, you know it's a really interesting world. Like even if you take the you know take the eighteen nineties or something like that. Like unlike England, you if you're living on the frontier, you you're you're living with somebody who. Um, potentially, you know, 50, 100 miles down the road who had never had a Bronze Age or a, uh, a, you know, a Bronze Age or an Iron Age, that they went straight from like bows and arrows to rifles and horses. And there is a, uh, I think that's a, like, there's a really cool kind of pluralism that is endemic to American experience, even with all of our hegemony and imperialism like there's a pluralism that is also a that is a root value uh, that we like we can encounter and for good or bad assimilate other experiences in a way that becomes a model for 20th and 21st century cosmopolitan global existence in a way that like a, a deeply rooted culture somewhere else couldn't ever have served as a model for a global world so you know that's the silver lining for all the terror <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> shaped our, our lives. So I'm, uh, I'm trying to find the, you know, the, in all this history here. No, I, I, that, I, I actually agree with that. I think the pluralism is the point, and that's kind of what I was getting at before about this sort of. I want to say I feel like we have entered this age of hyper propaganda and rhetoric where people have discovered the power of messaging and discovered the power of um, tribalism or rediscovered the power of tribalism, weaponized tribalism, right? right? And that those are being used uh, and deployed on the American public by, by professionals and amateurs alike to try to build their, these little, you know, 
fiefdoms, these little uh, digital fiefdoms, right? right? Or political fiefdoms, and that they don't represent the reality and what it really means to be American. And it's doing us a disservice. And what, I mean, that's kind of what the whole point of this podcast is too, is that I think people, like every single person is completely unique right and i know like i'm not talking snowflake shit i'm talking like the history and experiences of each person in this society is so interesting to me i think i think it's a i think it's i think there's like untold treasures of humanity all around us and we're all paying attention to like less than one percent of humanity and it makes me sad right and i think part of it i'll just you know kind of barf up a little personal anecdote here you know my mother-in-law died this year and well I mean you know it was kind of shocking it's one of those things where her health was bad but it's like you don't you just assume people are going to live forever like you don't think we're in denial all the time and I was thinking afterwards god damn it I should have should have recorded her I should have sat down and just made her tell stories and then I was thinking well, shit, everybody needs needs that. Like, I, I want to hear everybody. Like, I, I value people, right? I don't just, I don't value rhetoric. I don't value ideology. I value human beings. And I just feel like there's not enough humanization, you know, in media. I don't. Okay, I'm done. Uh, barfing. <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I don't think anyone... Not all, you know. Not only is media not, not kind of grounded in individual story, you know, it's individual stories and real, real lives. I mean, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people will remark that like a lot of media just reflects who lives in Brooklyn, right? And then there's like there's rumors of people who live in Middle America that uh, and and that you're filtering, uh, you're filtering what that looks like. And then there's criticisms of oh no, you're you're trying to get at the working class, but you're uh, there you're now like glamorizing the working class and you're not really getting at the working class because the working class is actually awful. Right. Like, and that's, that's the reality. If you deal, you know, if you deal with the working class or, you know, um, white working class or whatever, you know, like you'll see this, you'll basically see people in Brooklyn talking to themselves about whether they're getting, getting to the truth, <laughs> like right. getting to the truth about these other cultures that they don't understand. And that's a, you know, that's a, um, that is a fact about kind of the the mass media, but like the uh, I, you know I, I don't I, I certainly don't disagree with you. We need to hear the individual stories, but like the individual stories, they may be nice when it's coming from your family member, but they're pretty awful <laughs> when it when it reflects some people I knew from the South who are telling their stories about how great it is to you know how great white supremacy was, right? <laughs> you know, well, I mean, we, we, no, that's not what I'm talking about. We laugh, but the, I mean, the reality is with internet and everything like that, it's people promoting their brand, but it's also, you know, it's also people actually getting to reflect their own stories and what they think is true uh, in a fairly unfiltered way. And, you know, we can, you know, take Fox News as an example, right, that they've just been baiting people for for decades uh, and that they're just kind of manipulating people who actually are pretty regular folks who have been stirred up into paranoia. But like, um, yeah, you know, it's also to, they're they're telling these folks what they want to hear, um, and you know as they as we saw in the election when they're not telling them that anymore, 
<laughs> you know, like they're like, hey, Trump didn't really win. It's time to, you know, let go. You've got people really angry with Fox News right. because like that's they're kind of experiencing things from the perspective of their stories. Right. And they they want media that reflects their their understanding of the world. And that, like it's not clear who's manipulating who there, like whether this is a top down manipulation or whether like Fox News is really expressing an id of a lot of people that we would rather not hear from <laughs> like right. that we would rather just kind of filter out. And we, we actually like the old kind of cultural, cultural guardians uh, that have, that have been torn down. Yeah. At, since, since the advent of the internet and other kinds of cable news and stuff. Yeah. I mean, the promise of the internet is, or was that everybody would have an equal platform or an equal voice. And I think that's what I'm talking about. I, well, I do like to know, I, I actually am the type of person that I would prefer to know if somebody has dangerous ideologies, right? right. Like I would rather hear from Joe Blow if he's a white supremacist so that I know that he is a white supremacist. I don't want to have it just sort of, you know, just find out one day that, you know, during an FBI raid uh, next door that my neighbors are white supremacists, right? Like I, I would just, I, I, I like knowing where people are. I like knowing where all the pieces are on the board. So, and, and I know that that, again, I know that that makes people uncomfortable. Uh, but again, I don't think being uncomfortable is a bad thing. I think it's actually how you are able to grow and move forward. And you can't make any kind of progress, strategic progress, unless you know where everything is. Right. Yeah. If you're just guessing at where people are and where people stand, then, I mean, you're not going to be very good at plotting your course. So that part I get and I understand. And look, I, I don't have a problem with people spewing their opinions. I, I, whatever, whether I like them or not. But I think what I'm talking about here is a little bit different. It's more about the attention economy and how even with the internet being the way it is, where everybody has a voice, there are still people who are, um, who are hogging up most of the attention. They're still, yeah. and, and they're doing that by doing exactly what you said, you know, with Fox News, is that they are, it's very calculated. I'm in marketing, I know how to do this, right? Like, yeah. you figure out what moves people, you start speaking their language and you kind of funnel them toward these ideas. And then sometimes you throw in a, a stray idea that maybe they didn't have, but you want them to have, and it all kind of goes along and yeah. you are moving people toward a specific point. I think that's what I see happening. And I see it happening in media, but also in like political organizing and community organizing and things like that. And the thing is, we're all becoming much, much more savvy. I mean, very young people um, understand propaganda at a level that is astounding now, right? right? How to message certain ideas and how to reach people on a deeply emotional level with certain ideologies in the most innocuous and entertaining ways. Uh, this, this to me is concerning, right? If for no other reason, but that, um, you know, going back to it, I think, I think human beings are imperfect. I think our, I think pluralism is the point, and I, I don't want to see any of that go away. I don't like the idea of this gold rush for minds and hearts, where, right. you know, the, it's it's basically the the wild west online, and everybody's out there trying to start up their own little boom town of attention and then run with it. 
and and be the the next Fox News or the next mainstream media. Right. There's no that I, I would prefer a much more decentralized ecosystem of narratives and information. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, clearly there's a lot of BS in me saying, uh, well, here's where I see the issue. We've raised such huge, huge topics. <laughs> it's, it's almost in, uh, you know, it, it's almost kind of impossible even to rein it in. But, um, the, <laughs> uh, you know, like uh, the info, like what we're talking about, like kind of letting more information come through like that, that's not going to kind of create the social order that er- itself that everybody's interested in. Um, where everybody's free to kind of live as they want to live. It's just noise unless, you know, uh, it's just noise coming from everybody unless there's something that makes, that makes all these individual voices kind of, you know, meaningful and in the right ratios to that, like people can order their lives around them. And, um, and so like, you know, you've seen a kind of spontaneous, the, the, what you're talking about, I think in terms of, um, you know, people having their social media messages and the propaganda, that's sort of one spontaneous kind of order that has emerged that lets enough people talk, but it's ultimately money driven, mm-hmm. right? It orders itself basically through capitalism, right? And it's just like, it's just meaning, meaningless content that's generated, whereas the order is basically oligarchical with big media companies and, uh, and then kind of folks vying for influence based on their uh, ability to grab your attention long enough to make some money off it. Right. right. Um, and then, you know, and then, uh, but I, I'm very much like aware of the reaction to that, you know, that I think you see in certain kinds of fundamentalism, like uh, the problem, if you're coming from like traditions, you know, capital T traditions, like I, like I've come from the, the answer, I mean, quite honestly, the, the answer, if you're wedded to those tradition looks pretty obvious. The solution, <laughs> the solution is not more voices and more attention it is to it's to it's to actually find these sort of appropriate religious filters that tell you what's unimportant versus what's important what's evil versus good right and like uh, you know the, it's actually like let's go back to the original attention economy which is religious authority right like where here's here's the book that ju- that ever that everything else in your life needs to be judged in relationship to or the clerical order, you know, every, every religious tradition's got its own sort of traditional authority, but you know, it might be more book oriented or, you know, priest oriented or something like that. But, uh, um, but it's, it's something that's bound in traditional authority. And like, that's, that keeps, keeps the chaos from sinking in. And I, you know, I think that's what we see when we're looking at whether it's the Trump revolution or just all these kind of, or militia movements that are not necessarily, you know, Trumpist, in design, like let's, we want to go back to our ethnic way of life. Uh, like the, it, it, it's still kind of, it's a certain kind of tribalism, but it's like, what, no, we actually need to drown out the voices. We need, mm-hmm. we, we need to actually only highlight the voices that matter. And what I, you know, I, what I think we don't have, um, it, you know, those are really the two alternatives we're living in. I, I mean, I think what, you know, what you've, uh, the banality of media capitalism uh, on the one hand, or this really kind of ugly zealotry on the <laughs> on the other hand, and what I what I don't see emerging is um, is the the kind of synthesis. I guess I'm concerned that there that that won't emerge um, mm-hmm. because that 
where we've seen it in the past, it's some kind of rational synthesis. I'm, I, I speak as a philosopher, and that's what, like, in the 19th century, what you would have is this, like, great Hegelian worldview or social Darwinist worldview that, like, came after the French Revolution and all the chaos of the revolutionary era and said, oh, we're going to have a rational synthesis. And then you get you get bureaucracies, you get court, you know, basically you get big states, you get big institutions that, you know, guided us for a good 200 years. Those have broken down rightfully because those, those also impose this kind of authoritarian structure that doesn't right. allow people to be heard. Right. And I, I'm just not sure we've developed a kind of reason that, uh, <laughs> that, that can deal with the incompatibility of all these voices, but still well, hear from them meaningfully. I mean, that's, that's, go you know folding this back into the point about about the rootlessness that we're yeah. all that we experience there isn't a common set of rational beliefs yeah. and i don't know that there can be and this is where i right. feel like we may be at a stalemate in this in this yeah. culture it's like who or what outside of aliens dropping down is is enough to right. get it all together like at, at least give us one goddamn thing that we can all agree on is sort of central to what we want to accomplish or what we want to be or how we want to manifest ourselves as a society with all of this pluralism. And I think that's really exciting as a challenge. It's also terrifying because, because the chances of that happening are, I mean, I don't know that it's precedented, (laughs) right? Like, and if it fails, what we're, what we're left with as I, you know, I will be a prophet of doom is basically just, a balkanization and a breakdown of uh, a larger, you know, our country and a lot of, a lot of, a lot of conflict, a lot more conflict and conflict that is not good, like not healthy. Yeah. Right. right? Yeah. So, and, and we, I know that that, that is what could happen and likely will happen because that is what has happened in other places. (laughs) <laughs> like that's what it looks like when it breaks down when when whatever is central starts to go away we're in a little bit of a different position i think because we may not have ever had that central ideology i don't know if if there's anything that americans all agree on it's that we all want our own shit right right like that that and this is what's going to turn me into a libertarian no i'm just kidding <laughs> 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 basic principles of ownership and capitalism and no ju- no not even just that <laughs> it's not even an economic thing it's more yeah. of a i have a god-given right or whether you believe in god i have a right to pursue the my understanding of life and yeah. my purpose in it without interference from a government or a religion or anybody else and if i chose to break with even my closest most intimate tribe my family i could still go somewhere and survive and thrive and that's what i think that's what i think everybody here wants to believe and i i agree that i think that's what everybody want that's what everybody wants to think or that's the that's the go-to solution even across like i think even across like very strictly ideological lines there that is that is a kind of americanness right that uh, uh, yeah, you know, it's Western, but it's particularly American. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, you know, even our, even our socialist traditions have that, ten, like have that tinge to it. Um, right. But, you know, I guess that's where I, uh, I feel like that's where everything's breaking down. And that's where we're in our unprecedented 
times, at least in, in American history, because like this is a this is an era where that doesn't work, oh. right? Like, uh, um, that that's not going to help us deal with the ecological crisis. It's killed us in the pandemic, mm-hmm. right? Like th- this actually, like I, I think our solutions really do involve uh, involve developing forms of community that are not possible for us, that are not possible for us as Americans like right. we don't know how to do it right. and there's not like it would it would be invented for us because we don't have there's no there's none of those community traditions to rely on and in fact where where those exist that's a part of the problem because I mean all these southern evangelicals are trying to go back to the like I, I family voted for Trump and they're trying to get back to the 50s right, right? like, they're, like uh, when they're trying to get back to like those communities when they still existed, mm-hmm. right? Um, but uh, yeah, but like that's not going to happen. And then our, our our idea of well, you know, we're individuals. We'll make this, you know, we'll make this work. And freedom more than anything, like you know that that's kind of breaking down. It doesn't seem to be it doesn't seem to be a solution that works for the problems that we're facing, even in terms of bringing meaning to our own lives. Mm-hmm we actually can't retreat from all the chaos of the world <laughs> like it's around us you know yeah um, yep. you know we can only find little kind of pockets of places where we don't have to kind of deal with the full insanity so again i just you know foreclosed a possibility of a solution <laughs> yeah i this is my favorite thing about talking to you koi is that i come away with even more existential dread yeah right yeah. <laughs> no, i'm just kidding well, every day, well, <laughs> I'm just kidding <laughs> When when we talk, I you know I always bring up skepticism, right? Because you're like, uh-huh. oh my God, this guy talks about skepticism, uh, but like that's what the, these guys in ancient Greece they were dealing with these all these problems, right? Mm-hmm. Greeks and Persians and Romans, and oh my God, I got, gosh, I got a guy from Egypt who's now hanging out in Greece with me. What you know what's going on? But like this, this kind of like radical destabilization, and these guys didn't have any answers. What I'm kind of talking about when I'm like, hey, I'm a, I've become a skeptic is not that I don't believe in anything, but like I have these sort of like therapeutic practices that I've developed in a world where I don't have any answers and everything seems pretty problematic. Like yeah. what the skeptics were offering was like, hey, guess what? Everybody disagrees with each other. And it's <laughs> and there's no like there's no sort of root not like there's no kind of foundation that we can get to that says this is what we have in common. Yep. Well, here's some, um, you know, here's some practices to like keep you chill, right? Um, and and they their big goal is this thing called ataraxia, which is like a military term, um, which means like imperturbability. It's like the idea of you're you're stuck in combat, you're in mm-hmm. a combat zone, and there are noises everywhere, and things are shooting at you. Here's what you do to stay calm, and for your uh, for your actions to be pragmatically meaningful where otherwise you would just experience panic. You know, but the, those are not solutions to the world. The, those aren't solutions to, you know, the problems. Those are just ways of like continuing to act in a world where all those problems still exist. So yeah. that's like, that's where I'm at, which is just, hey, let's develop some of these skeptical therapeutic solutions. And that's why, uh, that's why I'm comfortable with the irre- irreconcilability of the things that I grew up loving. Mm-hmm. Uh, realizing wow geez i come from a white supremacist culture <laughs> wow, right. wow i'm i'm a product of it. I, i'm a product of us imperialism and i i still benefit from it greatly um you know like this is why i don't just kind of like stop dead in my tracks but yeah i think the problems are real that's why i'm such a 
doomsayer. So sorry about that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not, no, actually it's refreshing. It is. I, I feel like we, I, I'm actually sick to death of people who have the quote unquote answers because they don't have the answers and I know it and you know it and they know it. Um, they just want, they just want you to follow them on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would have been a lot easier for me to just kind of go back to, uh, you know, believing in the Bible and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just kind of going back to the roots, it, my roots. I had a very happy childhood, you know, like I had a, things were really good and it wasn't like overt oppression of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, like, the, you know, I can't go back to that way of life, um, even though it would be a lot easier. Uh, because at the end of the day, like once you, once you see that it doesn't make any sense, um, or that it's like actively bad, you can't maintain the same relationship to it that you once did. Right. It's true. I can testify to that. All right. Well, uh, we're going to wrap this up. This, this conversation is incredibly dense. I'm going to, I'm sure enjoy editing it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A snippet that you can, (laughs) that you can use to promote it. (laughs) Yes, I have so many to choose from. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I will make I will make us both sound like geniuses. I promise. Right. Or you know some reasonable facsimile. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right, uh, Koi, thank you for joining me. Is there any any parting words you want to offer the listening audience, all three of them? Um, no, that was your <laughs> that was the hardest question you've. Uh, You've launched at me. Do I have any parting words? No, not really. I felt like we covered everything in uh, in germ. Yeah, so. yeah. Probably maybe that, that that this can be the snippet or the parting word uh, for this for this episode. We covered everything in germ. <laughs> <laughs> All conversations are contained in this conversation, uh, in in a in some way. Yeah. 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 All right, uh, quite. please come back again and talk to me again for another thrilling episode. All right. All right. Thanks. Be safe. Happy Thanksgiving. And you. And don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves.